Hi, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources, so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and then found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and I'm saying that again for my Canadian friends because I talked to a few last night, and it was pretty nippy up in Canada. So I'm down in South Florida. My name's Debbie Montgomery Johnson, and I am so excited today because we're doing a wrap-up of what's new in the scammer world this quarter, and so much is going on. I must admit, I do have uh, Google alerts for romance scams and the woman behind the smile, and I've been getting incredible numbers of articles written from around the world on scammers and scamming and online romance and social relationship scams, and you name it, it's popping up. And so I've gone to my go-to person, Dr. Tim McGinnis, the founder of SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, and I'm asking Tim the questions today about these articles that we're getting uh, around the world. So Dr. McGinnis, you're coming to me from South Florida. Are you there with me today? I am. Good morning, sir. How are you doing today? Doing good. It's it's a good day in the neighborhood. That's great. I love to hear that. Well, Tim, you and I have been working with SCARS. You've been with SCARS for many years. And for the folks that don't know who you are, can you just kind of give a quick explanation of how you're affiliated with the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. I began educating about, about the topic of online crime uh, about 31 years ago in the old AOL and CompuServe's days. I did this in a, my capacity as an executive of a major electronics retail organization uh, that I grew to about $3.6 billion in annual sales. About 20 years ago, I created a standalone website called RomanceScamsNow.com to focus more on what I was seeing because, quite honestly, I was recently divorced and I was out in the dating world and was seeing a constant flow of fake profiles and online scams coming from both Africa, Latin America, and and Europe, um, as well as Asia. Um, However, realizing that the focus on the mechanics of scamming wasn't really the answer. Um, about seven years ago, actually about eight years ago, made the decision to fund the creation of a true nonprofit organization to focus more on the after-scam experience that victims face and, and created uh, SCARS, the Society of Citizens, against what was then romance scams, but we changed the name at the beginning of 2019 to relationship scams because relationship scams are a unique thing. They're not just romance. A relationship scam is a scam in that there is a trusted relationship between the victim and the criminals involved in grooming, manipulating, uh, exploiting the individual victims, and this has been growing steadily. So as the founder and uh, original funder of the organization, that's my relationship. I play the role of chief educational officer for SCARS, uh, chief cook and bottle washer, so to speak, in, in many respects. Um, and I'm proud to say that we are the only organization worldwide 
that is providing trauma-informed recovery program services for scam victims uh, literally worldwide. We have victims that we care for in over 60 countries. We have partners uh, similarly around the world that follow our model, uh, both in terms of avoidance, discovery, and recovery education. We also play an active role as a crime prevention organization, both collecting crime reports through our anti anyscam.com. Uh, we are a partner with Homeland Security for Victims Assistance. We're registered through the U.S. Department of Justice as a Victims Assistance Provider. And we're also partnered with the Federal Trade Commission as a Sentinel uh, reporting partner facilitating uh, reporting of what we refer to as cyber-enabled or online uh, frauds, scams, etc. Uh, we also work with agencies around the world uh, to provide them with intelligence that they can act on to effectively perform arrests and investigations, etc. So in a nutshell, that's who I am and what I do. Tim, how many scam victims do, do we think there are every day? Because I could put it in, we could say year. How many a year? How many a day? Do we really know? And if so, how, how many do you think there are? Yeah, we, we do, but the information is fragmented because it comes from a variety of agencies. So the first fundamental problem is the lack of reporting. Uh, best estimates are that firmly below 3% of uh, victims of financial fraud will report these crimes. That means that 97 to 99% of all financial fraud is not reported. So governments have no clue, and governments do not extrapolate or project. They report only on what is reported to them. So when the FTC says that there's been 450,000 reports, you should multiply that by 100 mm -hmm. to get the actual number. Now, according to the financial money transfer services folks, um, their estimate is that 18 million U.S. victims were created in 2021 alone through the use of services like Zelle and MoneyGram and Facebook Pay and Apple Pay and all of these other services. But in general, we believe the run rate to be around 30 million relationship scam victims in the U.S. per year right now. Now, the truth is, this was about a million in 2018. So think about that contrast and how much the pandemic has exploded this aspect of crime. Every 15 seconds, there's another relationship scam victim. With an average financial loss, of, depending upon who you listen to, either 9000 per the FTC or $13,000, $14,000 per the FBI. That's unbelievable. I mean, and I know we're in the business. I know that. Uh, so, Tim, why aren't we getting the word out in a bigger way? What's prohibiting the information getting out there to everyday people? Unfortunately, and this is going to sound blaming and derogatory, but people don't listen. Everyone believes that they are immune. Everyone believes it's never going to happen to them. Everyone believes that they're in control of their situation, and they don't have to worry. The fact is, we live in a world where, according to some estimates, for example, in Africa, there's a lion family every square mile. So if you happen to be a gazelle and you're going through that square mile, there's going to be a team of lions that are going to be there to eat you. The reality of today is that everywhere online is completely saturated with scammers. There is no place where there are no scammers. This is an ecosystem and the scammers are predators and they will go wherever there are people that they can prey upon. 
Now, why don't people learn? We as a society made a unique decision about the Internet. You may recall, of course, I'm old enough to remember, but in the early days of automobiles, there were no driver's licenses. But people were killing themselves in accidents. Traffic was out of control. So the world decided that there needed to be regulation of this activity. So they established driver's licenses. They established regulations and laws for conduct in an automobile. And this required training. So you had to learn to drive safely. We don't require that anybody learn to be on the Internet safely. And as a result, people have a false sense of confidence about their knowledge and their skills when it comes to being online. Now, that's one issue. The other issue is that generally speaking, going back to this, I'm immortal, I'm Im immune, I'm invincible, this is never going to happen to me, this is the prevalent mindset. I'm sorry to say, it's just part of being human. We haven't had lions eating us for a really long time, so people have evolved what are non-survival instincts. And as a result, people do not have the ability to properly evaluate risks to the extent that maybe our grandparents or great-grandparents had when every day on the prairie or wherever they happened to be was a survival exercise. What? You learned very carefully how to avoid risk. But the thing about scams is it's also hardwired in our brains. We're wired to be scammed. Okay, so what age group is most vulnerable? The truth is everybody. But it is a bit of a bell curve in that people who are most risk-averse tend to be in their late 30s and their 40s. These are the people that are spending most of their days being very analytical and working in industry, and they're trained to think, to avoid risks, to make more informed decisions. So the age group below that, particularly teens, because we know that people below the age of 21s, their brains have not fully developed. Specifically, the frontal cortex and their analytical aspects of their brain. They're driven heavily by their emotions, the amygdala, the cerebellum, etc. And also people in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, because they believe that they live in a world that actually doesn't exist. There are predators everywhere. And it's very difficult for people, the truth is it's very difficult for people at every age to accept the reality that evil exists in the world and it's no more than one email click away. The, the problem with education is that fundamentally it's all failed. All anti-scam education has failed. All anti-cybercrime and cybersecurity education has failed. But aspects of it are succeeding. But in general, our focus has been to try to help people discover the fact that they're in a scam so that they can begin to accept it and get out of it and then how to properly recover from the experience with as little residual damage as possible. So we know it's best to prevent it from happening. How can we, short of the public service announcements, <laughs> how do you protect your buddies from getting taken? What's the first step well, that you would say for your social media? Talk about it. Okay. It's as simple as that. Um, we're going into April right now, which is, which is Online Crime Victims Awareness Month. And our message during the month of April is a very simple one. No April Fools online. In other words, talk to just two friends. If all you'll do is talk to two friends 
and they talk to two friends, the world will become aware in one year. Of course, we know that's not going to happen, and, and that sounds cynical, but it's also realistic. But if everybody listening to this would simply talk to two people that they know, seriously and openly about what the risks are, but you have to remember that when you're talking to people, it's like talking to a 16-year-old girl or a 16-year-old boy. They're going to hear the words, but they won't register unless you make it personal. And being able to say, I was scammed, you don't have to talk in deep details. You don't have to dredge up trauma and, and the, the difficult psychological aspects of the experience. But just tell people, I was the victim of online financial fraud. And by the way, people need to stop using the word scams and all of the cute little phrases. These are crimes. It's fraud. When we hear the word scam, we tend to think about it in a different context than the word fraud. Fraud is a very blunt object. Scam is kind of like a feather. And when we talk about scammers and fraudsters, oh, that's a good little scammer, that's not as serious as when we say they are organized professional criminals. The words and the terminology that we use when we talk about these subjects is really important in properly characterizing the seriousness of this scam. As the number of victims have increased, so have the number of fatalities. Online fraud is a homicide. It kills people every single day. I saw a new estimate from Suicide Lifeline that said that they believe that victims of financial crimes take their life at a rate of around 100 individuals a day in the United States. This is vastly more than we thought the number was of around 20 worldwide. But it makes sense consistent with the elevated numbers of actual crime victims that are in the United States. And then when you compound that through the rest of the world and the explosion of the new uh, pig butchering scams as a technique, it stands to reason that more people are giving up hope and opting to take their lives because they can't face or confront the reality of what happened to them. Okay, that's a great segue into uh, what pig butchering is. It's, and when I mention that to folks, I always say it's a terrible term, but it's very descriptive. So can, let's just jump into that. What is pig butchering and who's being taken by this technique? All right. So pig butchering is an evolution in relationship scams. It isn't necessarily a romance scam because it can evolve and begin like any relationship scam. Someone contacts you online, you begin chatting with them, you develop a, a like, a friendship, and then at a certain point, instead of asking you for money because they're a soldier stationed in Zimbabwe or they're an oil rig worker working in Antarctica or they're a truck driver in, in Estonia, they simply develop a friendship without talking about money until a certain point they introduce an investment opportunity. And it's brilliant in the way it's done because it, it eliminates all of the challenges of traditional romance scams. They introduce an investment opportunity. They, they endorse it. So you're already trusting them because you've got this chat relationship going on. They endorse it. They share with you the app or the website. They suggest being very conservative, investing $100, $50, some small amount that nobody would worry about if they lost it. They see in the app that their money has grown, so all of a sudden 
I'm sorry to say this, but greed kicks in. And then they're encouraged to invest a bigger amount. The scammers will suggest well, if you don't have the money available, maybe you can put it on your credit card or maybe you can take out a small loan. I hate to see you miss out on this opportunity. So there's a variety of manipulative techniques that, that are taking place there as well as addictive techniques that the victims develop within themselves. There's a thing called chasing the money that you'd think that even if you lost, if you do just one more investment, one more roll of the dice, you'll get your money back. Another aspect of it is that it's very compelling. It's very seductive. But because the scammer isn't asking for the money, and what the victim sees is a very well-designed website or web app, they feel completely comfortable doing it because they've never investigated it, because they have the stranger trust that was developed initially and then the endorsement of their new trusted friend recommending this. They make the second large investment, or sometimes third, and then all of a sudden, everything shuts down. It goes away. They lose access to the app. They lose access to the website. They lose access to the scammer. Is there a this way at the beginning? One. Is there a way at the beginning, though, to as you're doing your due diligence, if you are, is there some telltale on the website or on the app phone number or something that you can say? This no, is a little and, and when you get good. to that point, no, and when you get to that point, you're already lost. the The simple reality is, we all have to operate from a point of extreme skepticism for everything. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a recent study that showed only 12% of Americans, and, and again, I'm using this because the data is accessible, will answer an unknown number on their phone. Now, think about the inverse of that, that 88% of Americans don't answer unknown phone, phone numbers when someone calls them. This is an incredible degree of extreme skepticism, and it's the right thing to do. Let it go to voicemail, and then you can screen it appropriately. But unfortunately, when it comes to online, people do not operate with the same level of skepticism. If a stranger contacts 10 people, seven of them will begin to talk with the stranger. It's do what I say, don't do what I do kind of a mentality. We tell our children not to do this, but we don't do it ourselves as a society. So the very first avoidance principle is don't talk to strangers. But since people are not going to listen to that, there's basically five simple things that are true of all scams. It's going to be a stranger is going to contact you. Shouldn't talk to them, but you're going to. Next, a relationship is going to be developed that will result in the victim trusting the stranger. Don't do it, but they're going to. The third thing is that some conversation about money will ultimately take place. Don't listen to strangers that you've never met in person about money. You shouldn't actually listen to very many people about money unless they're professionals. Deborah is a good example of someone that is worthy of listening to. But the vast majority of people don't really know, yet the majority of investment advice it actually comes from friends and families who probably are not very professional about this. <laughs> the fourth aspect is if you suspect something wrong, stop, withdraw, cut it off. But people don't want to offend. They don't trust in their ability to make a good decision. That's part of the job of the scammer is through their manipulation to undermine your ability to trust yourself. 
truth is, probably shouldn't, which is why complete abstinence and avoidance is so important. It's the only thing that any victim can rely upon to make sound decisions. You'll miss some things, sure. But if you miss 2% and avoid 98% of the criminal behavior, consider yourself ahead of the game. And then lastly, once you believe that it is a scam, report it. Most people don't. That's all there is to avoiding scams. But that brings up our next topic. When we go to report, who do we report to? And what's going to come out of that report? Who is your first responder? That's the first question you ask. It's your local police. It's not the FBI. It's not the Federal Trade Commission. It's not some mythical agency somewhere around the world. It is your local police. And as difficult as that is, because police are human and some of them are going to be jerks, a lot of them, particularly over the last five years, have become incredibly aware of this problem and are very empathic and supportive. Some are not. But it is every victim's duty to report these crimes because if they don't, they're just enabling scammers. For every report that isn't made, there's 100 victims. Think about that for a minute. Victims themselves, and this isn't blaming, this is an acknowledgement of reality. Victims themselves, by not reporting, are making the situation worse. Now, I know this is hard. Deal with victims every single day in various stages of trauma. But we can get there. Sexual assault victims learn to be able to report their crimes. Took a lot of support, a lot of compassion, and a lot of societal acceptance for that to become uh, possible. It's still difficult, both because of the trauma that the victims experience and because society still isn't as sensitive or empathic as they should be. Domestic abuse victims have learned to report these crimes. It's still not reported at anything close to 100%. Some estimates are that only 20 to 30% of domestic abuse cases are reported. Less than 60% of sexual assault cases are reported, but it's a lot better than 1%, which is the way it used to be. So when you go into a a police department, what do you take? Because obviously you're not going in with a black eye or a bruise, you, you go in, we know that you, can't, you shouldn't go in emotional, but how do you prepare yourself for presenting what you okay. are showing them and what do you want out of it? So the mistake that many victims make is they go in looking for a savior. The police are not going to be your savior. The police have one job in the case of these crimes to collect the information and pass it up the food, the food chain for a decision as to whether or not it's going to be investigated. That's all they have to do. They're not going to get on a plane and go to Ghana. They're not going to get on a plane and go to China. Now, the problem that exists from the police perspective is that victims are very disorganized. Now, this is something unique to financial fraud that is different than other kinds of violence. So if you were the victim of sexual assault, there is profound physical and mental trauma. And those victims may be incapable of reporting the crime for some time. This is why hospitals are obligated to report when they believe that a violent crime has been committed because that's one of the ways of increasing the report rate of these crimes. And as a result, society adjusted to its awareness and tolerance of these crimes. But in the case of scams, the first thing that victims must do is sit down and organize their information before they talk to the police. And that means 
throw out all the future plans, all the lies, all the drama, all the dialogue. None of it matters because it's just lies. What matters is hard data that can result in useful information for law enforcement. Phone numbers, email addresses, how much money, how it was sent, where it was sent, any addresses, any names, that's all hard data. Organize that. It shouldn't be more than two pages of information. Write it down on a pad of paper. Then take that into the police. Tell them that you're the victim of financial fraud. Hand them that information. Hopefully you've kept a copy of it. Hand them that information and let them transcribe it into their report. They don't want to know that he was an oil rig worker who lost his mother who has a child in, in a boarding school who can't afford to buy food on his oil rig or in uh, Zambia while on a peacekeeping mission. None of that matters because it's nothing the police can make use of. It's just dialogue and lies. So strip it down to the basic information. Who, what, when, where, and how much. On our website, romanscamsnow.com, we have a checklist for interacting with the police. We also have, uh, through SCARS Publishing on our SCARS Publishing website, a, an actual uh, book that will help you organize all of this information. But you can do it without buying the book. The book isn't expensive. It's $9. But organizing this information is critical because you're going to be reporting it more than one time. You're going to report it to the local police, and the only thing that you need coming out of there is a police report number, because this helps you validate to yourself that you are the victim of a criminal. Nothing more. Reporting to the police is your first step, or a victim's first step, in reasserting control and taking it away from the scam. There's a lot more to work through, but this is an important first step. It's you saying to the scammer, I know you're a criminal. I accept that I'm a victim. I'm going to do something about it. Now, once you've done that, then there are other agencies that you should report to. You should report to the FTC, and we have that link on romanscamsnow.com, a very specific link. Because SCARS, as a Sentinel reporting partner, gets more attention and visibility when reports are done through our link because of being a partner. Report to the FTC. You can also report to the FBI through ic3.gov and other agencies, Canada, the, the, uh, the Anti-Fraud Center in Europe, um, through national police. But... Always local police. Now, there's one exception to this. There are certain countries in the world, and I'm sorry to say this, if it is a Sharia law country, do not report to the police in that country, period. Whether that's Saudi Arabia or Iran or Afghanistan or Pakistan or related countries. Now, there are some which are progressive, like Egypt, not so much, but better. Jordan is pretty good. Um, Kuwait is pretty good. Uh, I'm not thrilled with places like Oman or, or uh, some of the Emirates. Dubai is very modern. So you have to evaluate whether your country will view you as a criminal by having given up that money. That's strictly Sharia law countries. The rest of the world, they may not treat you with respect, but they are at least professional police. That's Once very interesting, Tom. I'm so, go ahead, Tim. That's just, there's so well, much great information. I was just information. going to say, um, the other thing that is important, and it was brought up on a recent uh, Zoom call, is if you're in one country and you sent money to another, you can report the crime to that other country. And there are ways in which you can do this. So almost every country on the planet now has a cybercrime police unit. 
So if you're in the U.S., you can report it, report it to the, the, the agency of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You can report it to the Cyber Crimes Agency in Germany or France. You can report it to the EFCC in Nigeria. And I encourage everyone to do that because this process of reporting is cathartic. It is you establishing control. Now, there's a difference between reporting and getting justice. There's probably not going to be any justice because justice is a euphemism for revenge. You're never likely to know the real identity of the scammer. You're not going to know if they've been arrested, and you're not going to be able to affect that unless you report. People that post scammer profiles online are just wasting their time and unfortunately increasing their trauma. Report things properly, and then once you've done that, focus on your own recovery. This came up in last night's call. Can you tell us a little bit about what the role of Interpol or Europol is in, the, in, in should we contact them or do you contact them or not? I don't, I don't understand it. Can you, so okay. Interpol or Europol? Law enforcement agencies are a government agency whose job it is to receive complaints from victims or third parties, to investigate and to apprehend criminals. That's their job. They take reports, they take names, they kick butt, and they, they throw people in jail. That's the job of law enforcement. Europol is a law enforcement agency. It's the national law enforcement agency for the Council of Europe, the European Union. However, it has specific responsibilities so it is not a first responder. The cybercrime police unit of the government of Germany is a first responder, for example. But the truth is, all crimes begin locally. So you report to your local police first. They are your first responders. It's important to get a copy of the report or the report number because this validates the fact that you are a victim of a crime and that actually has benefit to victims because in many localities, there are extra benefits and services that are offered to victims of crime. Plus, victims of crime have certain unique civil rights in many countries around the world. Now, you can then report it to additional agencies over and above them. FBI is a good example, the FTC. Europol has its EC3. But the truth is, reporting it at the national level is the next step for people in Europe. Or if you're outside and you want to report about someone in Europe. Interpol is not a law enforcement agency. They don't take reports. They don't investigate crimes. They don't arrest anybody. Europol is an NGO. It's a non-governmental organization their job is to be an information gatherer and clearinghouse for law enforcement around the world. In other words, you could say that they're a paper pusher. Their job is to collect information and distribute it around the world. In that regard, we are as well. Our AnyScam.com website serves that same purpose. Don't even think about reporting to Interpol because you can't. And even if you got the email or a phone number, they won't listen. That's not their job. Their job is to distribute information about criminals many times and about crimes so that local law enforcement agencies can better do their job. Now, they have liaison personnel in major countries to facilitate that information flow back and forth between them and others outside. So when we're talking about transnational crime, which these online or cyber-enabled crimes are, there's a lot of coordination and information sharing that's necessary between governments around the world to effectively change these situations. For example, a major call center scam group was just busted in Latvia and Lithuania. This was coordinated by Interpol, excuse me, not Interpol, by Europol, 
because it involved numerous national jurisdictions. And that's part of Europol's role as being the overarching law enforcement agency for, for Europe. For example, the FBI does the same thing in the United States when crimes involve multiple states or multiple local jurisdictions. When criminals cross state lines, it is the job of the federal authorities to become involved. Same is true in Canada, except in the case of Ontario uh, in Quebec. Every country has their own peculiarities of jurisdiction, responsibilities, and focus. In addition, there are agencies which are quasi-law enforcement, like the Federal Trade Commission. It's a regulatory enforcement agency. They don't go out and, in, and arrest people. They work through federal courts to take action against criminals. The EPA, the FCC, alphabet soup of agencies do similar things. What are True we law enforcement arrests people. What are we seeing uh, today with the federal court system and getting some justice for our victims? So interesting things have been happening over the last couple of years during the pandemic and, and in this post-pandemic period, if we can call it that. Um, one, the evolution of awareness of the magnitude of the problem has been the single greatest achievement that organizations like SCARS and others have, have had in working with government and getting government to recognize these problems. So the result is that the FBI is more aggressively sifting through the information to identify perpetrators and then even going so far as to get indictments against people that are not even in the United States so that they can issue extradition warrants to countries like Nigeria. Uh, recently, a scammer kingpin in Nigeria that was on the FBI's wanted list was apprehended as a result of quote-unquote intelligence received by EFCC from third parties, whose names shall remain nameless. And the result is that that extradition process will now take place within the side of Nigeria, and hopefully that person will be sent to the United States and tried. In the United States, and in many other countries, government is becoming increasingly aggressive about this. We've seen just this week alone hundreds of cyber criminals arrested worldwide from a major, a major hacker gang in the United Kingdom to the, the group in Lithuania. Hundreds of scammers have been arrested this week by the EFCC in Nigeria. Uh, even in the Ivory Coast, they continue to do the job that they're able to do. Truth is, Ivory Coast, which is full of scammers, only has three or four law enforcement officers that are involved in cyber crimes. So they do the best that they can, but the fact that they're doing something is amazing. Ghana still does nothing. Um, be very careful about the chocolate you, you buy, by the way. Boycott Ghana and Ghana chocolate. That may be the only way of gaining their attention. But essentially, uh, U.S. courts are completely willing to try and convict cyber-enabled criminals of every type that are involved in financial fraud. But the numbers are tiny. They're minuscule still. But what we found when I was out in Dallas for that court case is that how important it was for people to have reported it. You know, you may, the exactly. individual may not see any justice in it at the time, but when they're the account numbers or something shows up in the forensic report, to me that was amazing and well worth you know, us saying report, report, report. It's important. It is being accumulated and it's being documented and possibly being used in court to sentence later on. So that was the importance and, and honestly I think when I went to the federal case in Dallas for the sentencing hearing, that was the validation for me and a little bit of closure 
for, you know, the FBI doesn't do anything. Well, they did do something in that case. And I do get alerts from, you know, my, the court in Miami just had a case uh, recently. And New York, there are states that are doing a fairly good job. We, the numbers are small, but we got to start somewhere. You know, th this is one of the great challenges also in supporting victims after the scam is there is so much disinformation, amateur urban legends spread around. And one of them is this common myth that the police don't do anything. They do exactly what they're supposed to do. They collect the report. It goes into their systems, rolls up into regional and state numbers, rolls up into national numbers. Think about something as mundane, probably not the best word, uh, as drunk driving. Mm -hmm. Remember where we were 40 years ago where a drunk driver would get a pat on the back, they'd get a cab called for them, and they'd be sent on their way. Bars and restaurants never took any responsibility for feeding somebody 20 drinks. There was a societal disregard of this serious crime that was killing thousands of people a year. As a result of the efforts of an organization like MAD, awareness developed that this was intolerable. Society had to develop an awareness. But more importantly, law enforcement and our court systems also had to evolve to treat these as the crime that they are. It's tragic that first-time offenders can be ruined for life. But society's safety is more important, so you have to be aware. But it took 40 years to get where we are today, and still to this day, there are jurisdictions that give people a slap on the wrist. They are in the minority now. That's the great news. Same thing happened with sexual assault, domestic abuse. So in our space, there is a lot of awareness that is being generated. But we are the only ones that are out there actively supporting and helping victims to recover. So we have a little bit different perspective. The last five years have seen a watershed change in government perspective on these crimes. The previous administration was very, very attuned to the issues of individual victims. The current one, not so much. They're more focused on corporate and governmental cybersecurity than they are on individual victims. But that awareness isn't forgotten regardless. This is an evolving process that is going to take time. That's no consolation for somebody who's just been victimized. But for example, we just saw an example of, of a member or a, a, a scam victim under our care who weeks after the scam ended went to their bank and had the wire transfers reversed and was able to get some of their money back because victims in general avoid the issue of talking about it with people that can actually help them. So because we were able to talk to this particular scam victim early and impress upon them the importance of reporting and being their own advocate, she was able to get some of her money back. That's amazing. And that's only the fifth time that I'm aware of that victims that we were connected to have successfully recovered their money. Wow. But the change in the mentality in the financial industry, the change of FINRA regulations, the change of the Federal Reserve, the change of the mentality in the United Kingdom and in Europe and in other places is profound. In the United Kingdom, it's estimated that 50% of all crime is financial fraud. That's a staggering realization. So much so that the United Kingdom is looking at ways to completely reorganize police at the local, regional, and national level to address this problem specifically. We haven't even begun to think in those terms in the United States nor in places like Canada. Japan is still, I'm sorry to say, incredibly backwards. The same with South Korea. If you watch any South Korean police programs, 
you see how it's almost like watching the Three Stooges the way the police act. But regardless, and, and that's a stereotype and somewhat racist, but the reality is police professionalism is an evolving thing that is getting better worldwide. What is and interesting, part- though, it's ahead. interesting, though, some of the most important uh, interviews that I feel I've done in the last year have come out of the UK and BBC and some of the news organizations, reporters, uh, they are interested. I was on a show the other day and they are very interested in what's going on and how it's happening. So here's a question about the media though, Tim. Why does the media want specifics? You'd never ask a victim of domestic abuse what happened step by step. What is the, the interest in how a relationship scam happens, is it? Be, I want your take. I've got my own ideas, but why do you think they're so interested in specifics, and why do we encourage our survivor victims to not communicate with the media for at least a year after the scam? So it's, it's part of this evolving awareness. Now, in the 60s, you might not have been aware of the way the media treated, uh, uh, treated rape victims. It was horrific. It was just as bad. It was salacious. Male reporters would try to dig down into each and every dirty little detail. It was terrible. And you can go back through some of the, the news services and look at stories from that, ter- from that era and be horrified. So part of the problem is that there is a awareness of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Today, the news media doesn't believe that there are any boundaries in their interviewing of scam victims. They now understand that there are boundaries when it comes to sexual assault, domestic abuse, and other violent crimes. The UK also has a significantly better educated media class than we do in the United States or in Canada. And I'm I'm generalizing. There are some very specifics. But we've seen, even with our involvement with National Geographic, how that episode on romance scams turned into apologism for the poor economically disadvantaged scammers. There was more empathy in that program for the scammers than there was for the victims, yourself specifically, and others. It was very disappointing as a result of that. It's good journalism except for that aspect. So the problem is terminology. The problem is an understanding of proper boundaries, an understanding that Scam victims are every bit as traumatized and as harmed as victims of violent crimes. Um, the, the English are especially interested in the mechanics because they believe that by exposing the mechanics, it will help other victims see the parallels in their own experience. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. In the U.S., it's all about salacious drama. Unfortunately, when you see most victim interviews, it's all done on the local news level predominantly. And they want three minutes of drama, and they present nothing useful to their audience after that. Yeah, don't talk to strangers, don't send money to people you don't know, blah, blah, blah. The same, the same basic bullet points that the Better Business Bureau puts out. But the reality is, They're doing nothing for the victim in such interviews. The victims are often very frustrated because they couldn't tell their whole story or the things that really mattered to them. And they're held up as a poster child of foolishness because one of the things that local media in the United States, Canada, Australia especially do is they're judgmental about the victims in a kind of passive-aggressive way. They're not overt in saying it, but 
the implications of the interview are poor victim, they were too foolish to recognize what really happened. The reality is, in none of these interviews do they convey this basic simple thought that victims are not to blame for this, that everybody can be scammed. And that's a tragedy. In the UK, they're doing a better job of this. And part of the reason is that there's an amazing agency in the United Kingdom uh, called Action Fraud. Yep. Um, Sorry, I had to sort through my Rolodex there of of (laughs) law enforcement agencies around the world, which is part of the Metropolitan Police of London. And they've been doing an outstanding job for a decade of really educating about the real mechanics of what goes on and de-vilifying victims as being what they really are. They're the victim of an organized gang of transnational criminals. It's not a scammer or a fraudster. It's a criminal engaged in serious financial fraud. But I don't see this changing. Of course, you and I know that we do our very best to do a brain dump on every reporter that we can talk to because it always bears fruit. They gain a better understanding. It results in more stories. It results in better stories, more compassionate stories as a result. But going back to the victims, if you're a new victim, don't share your story because your first concern is your own psychology, your own recovery. Sharing your story too early can be very traumatic, and it can result in people around you judging you incorrectly. This is, the, this is the, the Dr. Phil Jerry Springer effect, right? That they bring on the victim to make the family feel better, but it vilifies the victim or paints them in an incredibly derogatory light. And please, 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 everybody stop using the word catfish. It's a horribly sexist, derogatory word. I agree. And uh, I, I have found over the years that when I changed the way I did my interviews, and because most of the reporters are not aware, and they are looking for that sensational, aha, you know, oh, they lost a million dollar moment. I said, what you need to look at is, could this happen to your mother, your sister, or your daughter? And then explain to them what we've talked about today. Or your husband, about, or your son. Or your husband, exactly. And I, and I, I don't mean to not you know, bring the men in. We, we typically deal with more, more women because they're open victims. They'll speak about it. Uh, but the FBI told me in Palm Beach County, more men get taken for a million dollars than women, and they'll never talk yep. about it. And that's a, that's a true statement. Um, but if we can just educate and say, and not put it on us, as, you know, don't, don't pity me. I'm not a poor pity victim. Uh, it's happened to me, and I've learned a lot out about it. Yesterday, I said it was probably one of the most priceless experiences I've haven't have had in my life. It cost me uh, a lot of actually, money. Actually, it wasn't priceless. There was a very specific price attached to it. Yeah, it cost a lot of money, but I can't take that money with me in the end. But what I can take with me is being there for that one woman that writes to me and said, "I wish I had read your story before." Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm so thankful that you and Chris and Viani and and others of our board are there because you guys, guys in the generic sense, are the encouragement and the compassionate side of things, whereas my role tends to be more analytical and more factual and direct. You know, there it brings up a topic which is important. Encouragement is a dual-edged sword. Encouragement is not support. They're not the same thing. Support is providing a foundation that someone can stand upon. Encouragement is sometimes giving them the white lies to help them get through the day. That's the difference. SCARS provides support, and through our support activities, other victims encourage themselves. And that's an incredibly useful balance. When we look at other anti-scam groups that are out there, they tend to feed on their own young. 
And the reason for that is an article that we published recently on transference. Victims naturally, as a result of their trauma and their grief and the post-addictive aspects of, of their behaviors, transfer a lot of their emotions onto others around them. It's both dangerous and something that needs to be recognized. But in so many of the amateur groups, the victim that started the group thinking that they were going to be the savior of everybody transfers their anger and aggression for scammers actually onto the other victims that go to them for information. So the result is there's highly charged negative environments and atmospheres in these groups because of this. We're really careful to avoid the exploration and development of negativity because it is so counterproductive. Well, we want to provide hope. We want to, pre we want to be there to say you're not alone and this is how you can get through it and recover. Okay. Now, I'm going to disagree with you for a minute. <laughs> hope is a, is a four-letter word. What is wrong with hope? It's the same hope that you had during the scam. Hope is actually an extraordinarily useful mechanism and emotion, except when it's not. So hope based upon a factual understanding that you can get through this process and come out of it stronger, smarter, and more aware is incredibly valuable. False hope, which looks and feels the same, you know, when you do a taste comparison between hope A and hope B, they smell and taste the same, but one is not real, and it is important to always keep your expectations, quote-unquote hope, in line with factual reality. Well, there you go, Tim. And we're at the top of the hour. How can people find out about SCARS? Well, SCARS is virtually anywhere. So you start your journey as a new scam victim at romanscamsnow.com or if you speak Spanish in contrastafas.org. We are fully bilingual. We, we operate our English language organization and we have a Spanish language organization that operates out of Monterrey, Nuevo León, Mexico. Your journey begins there. This is a journey of learning because so much of what happened to you is based upon ignorance. There's no shame in being ignorant. You don't know what you don't know. But now you have to learn it. Now you have to learn to drive the Internet safely, or you will become a scam victim again. And the average is about 3.4 or 3.5 times victims will be scammed. That means there's many that are scammed once and many that are scammed dozens of times. We have lots of members of our support groups who have, in fact, been scammed three times. And on the third one, finally understood what it was about their personality, about their humanity, that made them susceptible to this. Everybody is susceptible. The only way you avoid scams is through a combination of knowledge and behavior change. RomanceScamsNow.com is the place you start. Place you report is go to that website, look in our directory at the top of every single page. We have a new, very simplified smartphone, uh, smartphone version of our website, which gives you access much more easily to information. We've just gone through a major redesign to make information more accessible, more findable, uh, something that was completed in this last week. If you want to look at scam photos, we publish videos of photos that go really fast because we don't want you dwelling on them. But if you insist, go to scamsonline.org, which is our million-plus scammer photo repository, which Google just notified us, by the way, that we are being really mean to scammers <laughs> and that we should stop it. Of course, we appealed and we won. But nevertheless, social media is the problem. The only solution is learning and changing your behavior.
Well, Dr. Tim McGinnis, thank you so much for your information. Again, romancescamsnow.com is the encyclopedia of relationship scam information, relationship fraud information, where to report. It's unbelievable. There's so much information there. Take it one article at a time and don't get overwhelmed. Go to our Facebook groups. Join those if you want some support in a group atmosphere. It is fabulous. Dr. Tim, thank you so much for being our scam buster today. There's so much more that we can talk about. That'll be another day. I want to thank our audience who is here and who's listening to this on replays. This is important information. And for the month of April, remember, we want to tell one or two extra people about what's going on out there. To beware and be aware. And when it happens, make sure you stand up and speak up. And don't let the scammers get the best of us. So Dr. Tim, thank you so much for being my guest today. And we'll adjourn till next week. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you are the victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to help victims around the world receive the help they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfoteaming products at BenfoComplete.com. Use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you for being with us today. Go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, for additional resources and information. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and enjoy the replays. My books are all available on Amazon.com and Audible, and I encourage you to join us again. Have a great day.